chaos engineering can actually be preventative of incidents because it creates this framework that allows you to experiment, find out things you didn't previously know about your system and change course, thus avoiding outages, avoiding behaviors from the system that you don't want. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Casey Rosenhall, CEO and co-founder of Verica, and formerly the engineering manager of the Chaos Engineering team at Netflix. Casey was an early champion and co-author, in fact, around chaos engineering, a discipline of experimenting with software systems in production in order to build confidence in the system's capability to withstand unexpected and turbulent conditions. His superpower is transforming misaligned teams into high-performance teams, and his personal passion is to help people see that something different, something better, is possible. On this show, we go back to the early days of chaos engineering, 2015 in fact, to the first chaos community days where people from Netflix, Google, Amazon, Facebook and more came together to explore the field. In fact, finding these people in those companies who are doing similar things, bringing them together to share notes was one of the favorite things Casey has ever done. So on this show, we'll hear more about how the domain started, how people got involved, but before we do, Let's learn a little bit more about Casey and his own background. I was a software engineer, principal architect type at the time, allegedly. My, <laughs> my, the people report to me now or question whether or not I ever wrote code. And, <laughs> I know that's yeah. Yeah, I might still deny it. At the time, I was really fascinated by Netflix's culture deck. It just stood in stark contrast to a lot of the intuitive things we, we think about management. For example, it was it ensconced this idea that, you know, you give the people reporting to you a lot of freedom and responsibility and you don't limit that. And in fact, process was a bad word. So I thought that, you know, this is fascinating. I'd love to find out more about it. It was my understanding that they had like visiting talks at Stanford from people at Netflix who were kind of pioneering this, this new way of thinking about management. And I knew some people who worked at Netflix. So I was really excited to tell them like, oh yeah, I'm thinking about going to Stanford, get an MBA and, and learn about your culture deck. And they, you know, it was kind of like a V8 moment. They looked at me and were like, well, yeah, I mean, you could do that or you could just come here and live it. You know, it was, it was almost a letdown. It was like, oh, duh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a really interesting idea. I'll yeah. take that on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, that worked out well for me. So I, you know, at the time I was the general manager of professional services at a startup called Basho. And in order to do that, I needed to understand a lot about availability and fault tolerance and stuff like that. And so they had an opening, the traffic team, which was a, a, a remediation team at Netflix. So they, they hired me to manage that team. And in my first week, you know, I was new, trying to impress people. They had this idea at that point, Chaos Monkey was about five years old. And as an organization, they knew they had some success with, with Chaos Monkey. And they said, oh, you know, we should maybe do more of that. So we've got this idea of maybe having a, a Chaos team. Does anybody want that? And, you know, I was new, so I didn't notice that everybody else took a step back. And, and they're like, my middle name's Chaos? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're like, oh, well, Casey's volunteering clearly. So sure, you can have that team too. <laughs> so I kind of, I haphazardly ended up with these two teams. And so people who might be familiar, say, with the Chaos Monkey, never mind Chaos Engineering, mm -hmm. Tell them, just give us a little bit of context about what those things are and how they sort of emerged. And in some respects, how your thinking emerged in that space. Chaos Monkey at the time was really interesting. It came out of Netflix's migration from the data center to the cloud, specifically AWS. And so they had these vertically scaled infrastructure. And as they were moving over to this horizontally scaled model on AWS, they ran into the, the, just the condition of being on AWS. Sometimes instances disappear with no warning, no advance notice. And so they had a lot of availability issues because, you know, single points of failure would just disappear and parts of the service would go down. So they tried, you know, a lot of things. One of the things that worked was, was Chaos Monkey. So they, they could have, in theory, 
just mandated that everybody put each service in, you know, redundant availability zones and have fallbacks in place and, you know, extra coding. There's probably like a dozen things we could list to make a service robust enough to handle an instance disappearing. The problem at Netflix is they don't have a CTO or chief architect. They don't have a mechanism to top down direct people to do something or enforce policy change. So Chaos Monkey would, for each service inside Netflix, every day it would randomly choose an instance and turn it off. Why would they do? Well, it took the problem of instances occasionally disappearing and brought that pain to the forefront and put it as a very clearly defined problem right in front of the engineers. And it turns out when you do that, engineers solve the problem. And we didn't have to tell them how, and we didn't have to tell them why. They knew that they couldn't get their work done that week unless they solved this problem. And then once they solved it, they never had to think about it again. So it changed their behavior by aligning the organization around the business problem that needed to be solved. One of the things that still appeals to me about that concept is in a roundabout way, it codified a management principle. That was cool and it worked. And you know, for 10 years, Netflix hasn't had an outage due to single point of failure disappearing because this is part of their culture and their infrastructure and their heritage at this point. So, you know, so they thought, okay, this ha- this works at the small scale with small instances. Why don't we try it at the large scale? Their control plane runs in in three different regions in AWS. If you're not familiar with AWS, you can kind of think of regions as very large data centers. So these are distributed, you know, ones on the West Coast, ones on the East Coast, ones in the in EU. And, you know, occasionally one of those regions will go down. No, Someone pulls a plug out somewhere. Uh, Someone puts a semicolon somewhere. You know, nobody's fault, but just, you know, let's say hypothetically, you know, Christmas Eve 2012, uh, <laughs> the AWS on the East Coast stops working for 24 hours. So Netflix was like, okay, well, let's have, let's do chaos at the large scale. And so they developed this program called Chaos Kong, where they would turn off an entire region and move all of that traffic to the other two regions. This was where the traffic team was born to build the automation to move, you know, just a massive amount of internet traffic around the globe. So that also worked. And, you know, in the process of that working, they said, okay, like we're onto something here. Let's, let's make this something we can do proactively. So when I got there, Chaos Kong was still being ironed out and my traffic team was building that out, making that work well. Okay. So the chaos team ends up in my lap. And I went around Netflix and asked, what is chaos engineering? You know, what am I supposed to do with this team here? And the answer I usually got back was, oh, that's when we break stuff in production. Intentionally break stuff. Yeah. And randomly break stuff. Which sounds really cool. However, I wanted to keep my job. (laughs) (laughs) And I was pretty sure I could break stuff in production all day long and not provide any value to anybody whatsoever. (laughs) Nice, yeah. I didn't want to break stuff in production. I wanted to fix stuff in production. So we, we literally sat down and created a, a discipline. We wrote a manifesto of sorts at, at principlesofchaos.org saying, you know, this is what this practice is, that we know when we're doing chaos engineering, you know, how to get started, how to do, how to do it well. So there's a couple of advanced principles in there that represented the, kind of the gold bar that we established at the time. And that worked. It worked phenomenally well at, at Netflix. And, you know, it's fortunately, it's been able to scale beyond that. So here's one of the other quirks of the situation. At Netflix, again, process is a bad word. They probably wouldn't agree with me saying this, but they kind of have some rules. One of those rules is you only hire senior engineers. Well, I couldn't hire senior chaos engineers because there weren't any because we had made that up. (laughs) There's no job description out there, right? Right. So I literally called up our peers at Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon, you know, the usual suspects and found out who was doing something kind of similar Mm -hmm. and ran a conference type thing called Chaos Community Day, where I brought them all into a room, you know, for to develop a peer community, but also to, or community of practice and academic speak, but, but also to try to convince them to use the title Chaos Engineer. Right. And it worked. So that by the second time we ran it, 
I was able to poach people from their teams. <laughs> and then I could say, I'm hiring senior chaos engineers because they've had that title previously. <laughs> That's a great hack. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> it's a great hack. We like hacks on the show. It's yeah, always good to yeah. know. Yeah. So yeah, that's how you start your own software discipline, I guess. <laughs> you know, but there's some good nuances there, right? Like like creating a, a meme, a concept, a banner that people can associate with is, is really powerful, right? And even building a coalition of the willing for people to sort of compare notes on. Like I think, again, one of the things that's most interesting about this field for me is it's super emergent. Right? There's, people haven't done this before. We haven't built systems at the scale that Netflix has to deal with this many people and this many regions. You know, a lot of the companies you've also mentioned, are, they're building these huge systems that we don't really know exactly how they're going to fail, how they're going to actually perform, the consequences of them, the unintended consequences of them. You know, we've seen so much of headline media and the news, how they can affect everything from politics, you know, right, right down to financial impacts in organizations and safety in human individuals as well. So I think, you know, this is what's interesting to me also is because counterintuitively, even the word chaos as a name, there's also quite a lot of control about how you go about exploring the chaos. It's actually very well structured from a discipline point of view. You know, so we like to tell people, it's not that chaos engineering is creating engineering. It's not engineering chaos. There's an implicit assumption that the chaos already exists in your system, and this is engineering to navigate it or to surface it so that you're aware of it. You're right about, so a lot of, most of my research actually isn't in chaos engineering or remediation, it's in complex systems. So this is increasingly more of a problem. If you're in software and you plan on staying in software, you're either working with a complex system now, or you will be at some point soon. And, you know, I'll, I'll define a complex system as one that, that has so many moving parts or so many degrees of freedom in those moving parts that one human can't mentally model the entire thing by themselves. So if a human can't do that, then they can't reliably predict the system's behavior when you change how one of the parts changes, which means a lot of the old ways we have of thinking about building and maintaining these products don't work anymore because those rely on planning and having intelligent people who have time to understand how all the parts move. One of the things I think that the discipline of chaos engineering captures is that it's a proactive approach to improving availability and security. And if you look at the other practices in that space, they're all reactive. They're all necessary. It's not a one or the other, but everything from disaster recovery to alerting to incident response management to observability, those are all focused on time to detect and time to remediate, which is important. Chaos engineering can actually be preventative of incidents because it creates this framework that allows you to experiment, find out things you didn't previously know about your system, and change course, thus avoiding outages, avoiding behaviors from the system that you don't want. So maybe, maybe you could share an example of that. So you know, say I'm in a cross-functional team, maybe I'm a product manager, or maybe I'm an engineer. What's different about Tell me an example of maybe when you were in one of your companies recently and what changes were you making? I'll start with a security example. Availability and security are really two sides of the same coin from a system safety perspective. So a lot of the tooling for chaos engineering works, works for both. And one of my favorite recent examples on the security side is a program, an open source program called Chaos Slinger that was run at United Health Group. And my favorite experiment, one of the experiments there will misconfigure a port. And the hypothesis in the experiment is changing this port will be recognized by the infrastructure, will be immediately blocked, it'll be logged so that you know where it happened, and it will generate something that will trickle up to and some sort of, you know, it will go into a SIM or incident response. I'm not a security guy, so I might, I might not know exactly how this is supposed to play out, but I, I understand that the basic... Uh, steps. And so half the time that they would run this experiment, it worked. Half the time. <laughs> the other half, you know, misconfigure a port, expect your very expensive firewall to catch it and block it. Half the time it wouldn't. But 100% of the time, their cloud configuration software would catch it and block it. 
which is you know a, co- a commodity feature. Yeah, and it would generate logs, but not enough detail in the logs to n- tell you where it was happening, and so that wouldn't trickle up to to IR. I mean, firewalls are expensive. If you think, and United Health Group is huge. They're Fortune Five. It's a, you know they're we're talking large dollar amounts here. What this tool was able to teach back to the security team about their own security posture was just immense from the point of view of like, where do we allocate resources? Where are we weak that we didn't know we were weak? They had to change how they do their jobs because this taught them about themselves in ways that no amount of sitting in a room and hypothesizing would ever have demonstrated the reality of the situation to them like this. I think the thing that's very contrary with this is that it's not about people trying to predict the future. It's about them having the data to understand how the systems are performing and then taking action based on that. One of the classic management prevailing thinkings is that, you know, you're 20 years experienced in software engineering, you're 20 years experienced as a product manager, you're 20 years in the airline industry, 20 years in the healthcare industry, you're an expert. You know all the things that are going to happen. That's why you're paid the big bucks, right? You're, that's why you're sitting in the, the seat of control or power, or whatever it might be. And yet there's something interesting about what's different with the approach you're taking it here is that you're formulating hypotheses, you're finding ways to test that hypothesis as quickly, as cheaply as possible to get the truth and then adapting from there. And I think that's, that's different for how most companies believe, how most people operate. Yeah. I love examples like that because it does have that light bulb moment with the team where it's, oh, we thought the world looked like this. And now, and this data, you know, we just can't argue with. It doesn't look that way. It, it looks like this. And it's not that the experiment teaches them something at its conclusion other than it violated their hypothesis, but it forces them to go off in a new direction. And now they're generating new knowledge. Strictly speaking, tests don't generate new knowledge. Experiments do. Because when it breaks your hypothesis, you have to go back out into the world and form new hypothesis. And these are, these are new properties about your system. They're new facts that you didn't, you didn't even know that there was a reason to go looking for these. Yeah. And I, th- I think that was one of the things that was really interesting to me about these ideas like the chaos monkey when they started to emerge is like intentionally injecting failure into systems to find the weak points rather than trying to design so no failure would ever occur. There's some sort of humility recognizing that it's a complex system. It's going to operate in ways that we can't anticipate. So what's more important that we get perfect about our solutions before we do anything, or we have telemetry or feedback mechanisms in place that will tell us when we try things, are they moving us in the direction that we want or not? And they're sort of like diametrically opposed strategies in some respect. Yeah. And this is why most of my research is actually in, in complex systems. That's where the, the gems are for learning better ways of going for. I refer to this as navigating complexity. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to remove complexity, then you're actually doing yourself a disservice. And actually, I'll, I'll emphasize that because that's one of those things that seemed intuitive at first. In fact, we had debates at, at Netflix early on where some engineers came in from a, a very, I would say, typical intuitive philosophy that simpler software is better. You should always aim for simplicity. And if you can, you should take a complex system and replace it with a simple one. And empirically, that's just 180 degrees false. Complexity and success track together. I'll give you an example, just a a quick technical one. Imagine you have a a key value database, the simplest database you you could possibly write where you give it a value and a key and it stores the value. You give it a key, it gives you the value back. You run it in memory on, you know, you can write it in bash or something, run it in memory on your laptop. Okay, really simple. And now the business has a requirement, make it more available. Okay, let's take it off the laptop where it disappears when I close the lid and we'll put it on the cloud. Now it'll presumably live longer, but instances on the cloud disappear. So, okay, we'll put it behind a consistent hash that there's multiple nodes that can uh, replicate the data. And let's go ahead and we can replicate that between multiple clusters multi-regional replication uh, across uh, uh, different data centers. In less than 60 seconds, we can, we've just traversed some very well-known, well-structured availability mechanisms for databases. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. It adds complexity, but we know how to do those things. 
and it gets you what the business wants. Now let's go back to the this, this simple case of running on the laptop in memory. Imagine the business requirement came down. I want you to make that more available and also simpler. It can't be done. What the business wants are features and properties that necessarily encourage the creation of complexity, be it availability or better performance or whatever. So your job as an engineer is to add complexity, not to remove it. And I sometimes hear the refrain, well, yeah, but you shouldn't have more complexity than necessary. Well, you shouldn't have anything more than necessary. That's kind of just a truism, right? Like, you know, you could put any word in there. That's not the point. The point is, if you direct energy to removing complexity, you are probably directing energy in the wrong place. You are probably directing energy towards removing something that provided some business value. And that's probably not your job. <laughs> well, it's really interesting to hear you to give that example, right? Because the, one of the things we talk a lot about when you're trying to solve challenging problems is, you know, I often say, think big, start small, learn fast. So there's a mechanism about when a business requirement came down to say, you know, give me some security. Thinking big could be, well, multi-region, multi, you know, multi, 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 multi le levels of resiliency and, and availability. But if you start to try and build complexity from the start, that that's not going to work either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think helping people, but the trajectory you've described, which is thinking big, starting small might mm -hmm. be the laptop and learning fast as that work and building into the complexity. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to differentiate those two things because, yeah. you know, one of the things I definitely see a lot of just happened to me today, you know, companies are doing these big projects. They have big ambitions about the things that they're trying to do. You're, you're a Netflix, you're trying to distribute content all over the world. You're a bank, you're trying to do trading in every single country in the world, right? They're big, complex problems. And the way people try to solve them is they try to think big, go big, and become too big to fail. And I think one of the nuances, again, with this approach in chaos engineering is you make things safe to fail, not fail safe. And you think big, start small, get feedback, learn, learn fast, again, get feedback if the steps you're taking in this complex environment are driving the outcomes that you want. So there's a whole load of like, there's a, there's a system at play here that needs to be in place to let people explore uncertainty. You need telemetry, you need feedback mechanisms, you need clear descriptions of what it is, the hypothesis, the outcome you're aiming for. You need to define your experimental steps so you can navigate that uncertainty. Yeah. If I could build on that, one of my favorite models I stole from Kent Beck, he stole it from economics professor somewhere. I call it the economic pillars of complexity. I don't know what it's actually called in economics because I couldn't find it, but we'll just go with that. So that this model says, when you're thinking about how to navigate complexity, you can focus on four pillars. The number of, and this is for production as well as it's the number of states, the number of relationships between parts, the environment, and the re reversibility. And so the quintessential example of this is Ford in the 1930s. You know, you can have any kind of car you want as long as it's a black Model T. And, you know, the parts were all standardized. So they limited the number of states, which helped them navigate the complexity of the market. They also implemented Taylorism to a T, you know, to measuring steps. So they limited the number of relationships between moving parts, which helped them navigate complexity. Can't really affect their environment, although, you know, monopolistic practices, maybe they were able to, and most of us can't. And reversibility is really hard with a car. We're, you know, not talking about putting it in reverse, obviously. But. <laughs> Talking about melting it down and and so and rebuilding it. Yeah, I mean, in so other car other car companies literally had a team that would assemble an entire car. Whereas at Ford, you know, you had an assembly line. You, your your relationships were really limited. Maybe you could talk to the person on your right, but not on your left. That kind of thing. So how does that translate to software? Well, business requirements usually drive the number of states to increase. So you you probably don't have a lot of say about limiting the number of states of your business for your software product. Uh, you're probably adding features moving in the opposite direction. Relationships, you look at microservice architectures, the way companies are being designed now, the, the layers in the stack of just running software, those are growing. So that's moving in the opposite direction. Environment, if you're like most companies, you can't do much about. But reversibility, 
So if you go back and, and start with the transition from waterfall to XP and then agile, and you look at that through the lens of reversibility, it's a very natural fit. You know, waterfall, year-long process, get to the end of it, put it in front of the customer and they say, that's not what I want. Well, tough. You know, we're moving forward anyway. Yeah. As opposed to one week iteration, that's not what I want. Okay, next week. Yeah, that's closer. Third week, now you're moving in the right direction. But more interesting than the process stuff to me are the architectural stuff. You can actually make design decisions that improve reversibility. And so this is why, consciously or not, Netflix selected a microservice architecture because they could reverse the decisions of pushing a piece of code to production, which allowed them to, to get feature, better feature velocity in a very complex system. Other examples, the CICD pipelines, those improve reversibility. One of the main reasons being put out there for, uh, to evangelize containers is that allows developers to try something, to put code out in the world and, and get it back quicker. Feature flags, canaries, blue-green deployments, and chaos engineering. These DevOps practices, I'm not sure all of them would subscribe to DevOps, but I'll, I'll just categorize them that way. These practices, you know, contemporary practices in publishing software improve the reversibility. So if you're in a position to make a decision about selecting architecture that gives you a leg up in navigating the complex system you're going to build, you can actually intentionally choose the things that prove reversibility and that will pay dividends down the road. And it's just like that, you know, there's power in that, you, you know, here's a, here's a choice that's going to make your life easier down the road or not. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to me, right? Because all of these things, it feels like constantly creating systems that you can try things and see the results yeah, exactly. and adapt your behavior based on the results. Right. So your stories are, are very technical based stories. A lot of my work is with human systems. I'm asking teams and people to work in a different way. Like one of the things I come up against quite a lot is people aren't good at designing experiments for themselves. I'm going to try and learn a new skill. I have an aspiration to be fitter, to be healthier, to be a better manager. How do you know what, what is success for being a better manager? Is it 50% of your team say, you're the best manager they've ever had, 75% of your team in the next three months. Like people don't describe those outcomes. And then I get to say to them, well, if that's the outcome, that's, you know, your hypothesis is you can get there. What's your experiments to get there? If you haven't described a hypothesis, you've nothing to test against. You just start doing stuff, buy everybody lunch, buy everybody coffee, create cross-functional teams, <laughs> get people to work on smaller pieces of work and ship them more frequently. Right, like these are all experiments. But again, if you don't set up the system to help you experiment with human systems, like the rigor that you put into doing engineering practices and having analytics to tell you when you do a deployment, did it work or not? When you test something on your machine, did it work on that? It did. Let's propagate it to a more risky environment. Let's go to a pre-production. Let's go to prod. All these powerful mechanisms you're using in engineering, and yet in the human world, so few people apply that rigor to that sort of human change. Even just starting off with what is the end goal? Yeah. Like what, you know, how do you know when you're successful? Three years from now, how do you know you've, su you've succeeded? Is it, you know, because yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the next thing you know, you've got a, a really high, you know, lunch bill and some very confused <laughs> workers who are a little bit overweight because you're eating out too much. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, is, is that what I was shooting for? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, but it, it's very real, right? Like digital transformation. What is that? How do you know you have digitally transformed? You know, if you're not describing a quantifiable outcome, you can never know if you're there or not. You can't experiment and try things and say, do we go from, well, digital transformation? What does it mean? Does it mean 50% of our customers are retained more? That our customers buy 40% more of our products in the next six months? If you don't describe those outcomes, you've nothing to test against as you do your experiments, as you launch new products, as you change your processes. It's a real lacking thing. And it doesn't have to be quantifiable, right? Like you don't have to be able to put a number to it, but you still have to be able to articulate the goal, right? So yeah, I, I, run, I, um, I love high performance teams as a, just as a phrase, because it's, you know, it's like art or the, the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. Like, and we know it when we see it, 
but we can't really like specify what a high performance team is. I think that's one of the most powerful things that we can we can look at and move towards as managers. You brought up the example of of managers. Here's one of my hypotheses. And this this came from me asking, okay, what does a team look like that has the properties of being more resilient than another? And then it kind of became, well, this might actually just be generally like a better team or a high performance team, a team that delivers the the properties that a business wants better or faster than let's just say the average, like in a like a pure comparison. And one of the things that seems very intuitive to us in the software world, because we were raised in it, is the culture of hierarchy that organizations are currently structured. And so, you know, one of my favorite, I, I have a quote and I don't have it in front of me, so I would, I would butcher it, but I can paraphrase it. Something along the lines of, you know, software engineering is the epitome of efficiency and well thought out planning and you know decisive outcomes and and I love this quote because I'll you know I'll put it up there and I'll be talking about it and I'll see heads bobbing like you know software engineers like yeah we are really efficient we we do we do have a great division of labor and great planning that is part of our culture and then I say well yeah actually the quote it's not software engineering it's bureaucracy and then everybody kind of pouts right because we all think bureaucracy is a bad word right so why do sociologists call us the bureaucratic profession. Sounds like an insult. (laughs) Maybe it is actually, but no other industry has done a better job of separating the people who decide what work needs to be done from the people who decide how it's going to be done from the people who actually do it. We have mastered that in software engineering, and that is entirely a relic of widget creating Taylorism. And that's not the world we live in anymore. So my hypothesis is the better teams, certainly the more resilient teams, but probably also the more high-performant teams have been able to extricate themselves from the bureaucracy that most of the software engineering industry still, I'll just say, wallows in, where you have that separation. And that completely deprives the people doing the work in a complex system from the context that they need to do it well. Certainly when they have to improvise in, during an incident, and I don't just mean the ones that make the headlines, because most incidents probably happen in ways that the rest of the organization never hears about, because most of them are probably almost outages and not actually, which means you have people who have you know, adaptive capacity. They have tools on hand to improvise in the moment to prevent you know, the site from going down or a security vulnerability from propagating or some, you know, something along those lines. And because they fix it, that doesn't become part of the story or the institutional knowledge of, oh, those, th- that freedom was really important to fixing it. That story doesn't propagate up in most organizations. So instead, we just assume that we're safer than we are and then, you know, because of the bureaucracy and the planning, we think, oh, well, as this process grows or as the product grows, we'll add more process, we'll add more systems, we'll add more layers of management, and they'll divvy things up and plan better. And what you're actually doing is removing the tools from the people who need them most to improvise in the situations that are most critical. It's a great point, right? And I think the way to sort of make that concrete is when we're thinking so many companies have these structures management, middle management, lower management, mailroom. They have silos, right? Designing things, building things, testing things, yep. deploying things. So these are all like information pockets that operate and don't share information. So the system can't get smarter. And I think that's why some, it's, it's very interesting when you think about companies who are intentionally designing themselves to allow the conditions of success be there. Why have small cross-functional teams? Because the knowledge can live and reside for a complex system with with a cross-functional group of people who can make changes and understand the impact of those changes, rather than being siloed and that information getting lost. You know, why at Netflix not have a, a CTO to dictate policy? Instead, let the crowd decide what are the best tools for their little unit inside that complex system that they're responsible, accountable, and your freedom and responsibility point. It makes sense if you're making cast iron parts and you've got a master designer who's been, you know, designing high precision parts for 20 years that you don't want 
the person on the assembly line mucking around with the design of that part. So that's the heritage that we've grown up in. It makes absolutely no sense in a complex system like software, where the person on at the sharp end, the person who's doing the work, has to improvise in order to get stuff done. There's no way an engineer can have all of the code that, they're, that they have to write laid out ahead of time. So they have to improvise. That's part of their job. It makes no sense that a CTO or even their manager is going to know how to do their job better than them. Because you know their manager has another job. <laughs> that's, a, that's a people-focused job. They can't ha- possibly have the same context as the person doing the actual work. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Like I, I think I constantly say unlearning management is relearning leadership. Changing the way companies are organized, the way teams are organized to let the people with the most context, like pushing decisions to where the information is freshest, richest, yeah. and, and contextual. That's why we have cross-functional teams that operate autonomously as much as possible to build and ship their own software to find out what works and what doesn't, to respond to how customers use a product, to respond to security failures when they happen. The context lives within the team and, and they're responsible and can make those changes. But that's still quite an alien concept for most organizations, right? And, uh, and the manager to 20 years in the industry and the expert, all these things have to sort of be unlearned. So. How did you, not only now, post your sort of Netflix experience, you know, you're building your own company now. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from that experiences and others that you're trying to bring into your new company as much as you're building tools again for the industry to start adopting these practices? So they're new behaviors for people. How are you helping them understand why they need to take this approach, how your tools are going to help them actually get better? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that holds managers back is obviously the habit. We're all just creatures of habit, right? Most of us think we're making decisions when we're not. We're yeah. just following habit. So there's there's definitely a lot of that. There's momentum behind the way we were brought up to manage and think about management. And then there's lack of knowledge how to, you know, what does success look like? What a, you know, how do we actually recalibrate ourselves? One of the things that I love emphasizing with other engineering managers is when you figure out how to manage a high performance team, it's a hell of a lot easier than managing not that. So you're doing a lot more work when you're keeping track of, you know, okay, what's my team's velocity? How many PRs did they make today? You know, let me review their code and you know, PRs, code review, that should be done. But for a manager to do that, as well as try to keep track of the, the communication dynamics, which are much more important for a manager, as well as making sure that the context is getting to them so that they're solving the right problem. That's a lot of work. It's much, much easier if your job is just the latter one. Make sure that they have the context that they need to make the right decisions. So I've been asked, well, like, well, you know, engineers have this tendency to like go off and rebuild things or they, they go to the, the shiny technology or that's why I don't really, you know, I can't really trust them to, to make those decisions on their own. Well, from my point of view, that just means they, they don't have the right context. Sabotage, Decker brings this up in his research all the time, but sabotage is extremely rare. And most people want to do their job well. So if they're off doing something that's not a good use of company resources, it's probably because they don't know what they should be doing or you haven't given them the right context as a manager that, hey, that's not what the company needs. They probably think that what they're doing is, is the best thing that they could be doing for the company by you know, experimenting with something new or rewriting a program instead of adding a feature incrementally. So my guideline for success for a manager with engineer reports is, can you take one of your software engineers, can you pull them out at any time during business hours and ask them, explain to me why what you're working on right now is the most important thing that you could be working on for the company. And if they have that answer on hand, then your job as a manager is done. You just need to keep making sure that happens. Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite things about this system of accountability that's really well drilled, especially in Netflix. People are clear on what their objectives are, the what, but they're really encouraged to figure out the how themselves, like how do we get there? 
you know, another classic manager is like, I always say, you've got to unlearn output and relearn impact. And what I mean by that mm. is, you know, when you were an engineer, you were measured on output. Look at all this yep. great stuff I'm getting done. I've got loads of stuff done. I'm going to tell you what you need to get done. I, I can tell everybody what they need to get done <laughs> and how to do it. And then again, this subtle transition is actually setting the context. This is the impact I need you to have. Go figure out how to achieve it. It's not measuring on how busy I am. It's actually setting good context for people. Why are we doing this and, and what success is for it? You go figure out how to do that. You're engaging people in the problem solving themselves. You, your job is just keep reframing this context, you know? And I think that's one of the systems I think that Netflix has done really well with, actually. It's a system of accountability that people would ask, you know, what are the strategic objectives of the company? And you list them off like yeah. one, two, three. And they do have some business advantages that I think Netflix is a great example because they have business advantages that allow them to be like a, a, a beacon of how it could be. But most businesses don't have those advantages. So for example, they only have one product, Google, Apple, they, you know, who knows how many they get. Google just, you know, went into um, gaming on streaming gaming this week. Yeah, today. Today, okay. yesterday, where Netflix only has one product. So every engineer at Netflix, I haven't worked there in a year, so maybe this has changed. But when I worked there, every engineer within the first week of being there, they knew how to pull up one chart. And that chart, at least, that chart was how many videos are start, start playing every second. And over time, if you increase that number, then it doesn't matter what else you're doing, right? You could go, you know, I used to jokingly tell my team, you can go smoke pot in the Santa Cruz mountains for, you know, three months, you know, for all I care. If, you know, you come back for half an hour and write one line of code that makes that number go up and to the right. That's where most of the valley are, by the way, half their time. Yeah, up in the Santa Cruz mountains. <laughs> yeah, right. So maybe they're learning up there. I don't know. But I think my, my point, Stan, that's what the business needs. If you can show me, if I understand and know that you're solving that problem, then I don't care what you're doing because that's what the business, the business doesn't need you to be busy. It doesn't need you to write lines of code or have velocity or any of that. It needs that outcome. Very interesting to hear about what you, you have been doing and how your experience is sort of taking you to this point and building a lot of these tools to institute these practices within Netflix. Now you're doing something different. Are you doing some of the same? There's definitely similarities starting out. So I, you know, chaos engineering obviously is a discipline that we continue to promote and evangelize because I, I think it, I'm just passionate about the subject. I think it's really important. We all know what CI and CD are at this point. My hunch is that, you know, in addition to continuous integration and continuous delivery, three years from now, you won't put serious code into production without having a continuous verification pipeline or a continuous verification system. And, you know, chaos engineering can be part of that. So I, I co-founded a company called Verica that builds continuous verification products for, you know, large infrastructure at scale. So it's great. I get to continue to explore, you know, complexity. Uh, we get to pull in elements of chaos engineering. My co-founder, Aaron Reinhardt, was the chief security officer of United Health Group. So he's, you know, bringing some of the security pieces into play. Yeah. And I think we can, we can help people navigate complexity and build, um, build better products. Well, you know, it's exciting for me even to hear that narrative. Obviously, when I wrote Lean Enterprise with Jess uh, Humble of continuous delivery fame, you know, he, he constantly even wonders if that was the right word to call it. But what's interesting is, you know, these mechanisms and the fidelity of the tooling that we now start to have in place to go around the scientific method. So the fidelity of how we can formulate hypotheses, sometimes informed by data, sometimes informed by hunches. Great. Then we have these great mechanisms that we can build and ship things like continuous delivery. And we have mechanisms to make us feel confident to scale that out with continuous integration, starting on my, my machine to a pre-prod to a prod. But I'm so happy to hear that people are thinking that we have this continuous verification, this checking. Yep. Check, 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 check. So you know, I think if Deming was alive, he'd be so happy to hear that we're doing this sort of plan, do, check, <laughs> act cycle. And I'm not sure I agree with him about, <laughs> about a lot of things, but that part, yeah, definitely. Right. You know, so it's great to hear like the fidelity in the tech space 
of how people are recognizing that we need tools that when we build these small systems right through these hugely complex systems that you know that you've worked on or examples from united healthcare to netflix to google to who, who, these systems that we've never built before that we we cannot predict how they are going to be used so we need to understand how they're being used and are we getting the consequences we want or the consequences we didn't intend right so that's exciting for me to hear that work is happening in that space because we need tools to do that and from what I can say, the industry is moving in that direction. So short antidote, when we started evangelizing chaos engineering, after about a year, we got a lot of pushback back from banks who were like, uh, entertainment, advertising, whatever. You're a customer facing app. You're well, not a highly regulated. Well, yeah. You don't have money on the line, guys, right? Like in your transactions, that's, you know, it's, and, you know, to which we said, well, oh, yeah, sure. Okay. If that's how you want to do things, but do you have outages? Well, yeah. Okay. So what's your plan? You're going to keep having outages and just like fall down, get back up, start running, hit another brick wall, fall down. Or do you want a way to potentially know that you're running towards a brick wall and go around it? Because that's the benefit we're getting. Okay. So they, they started to adopt chaos engineering and the financial as a vertical, finance has picked up chaos engineering more than any other market segment that I could see from what I can tell. So the banks are really running with chaos engineering. The year after that, we got it from healthcare companies. Oh, entertainment, advertisements, money, pshaw. We have lives on the line. We cannot do chaos engineering with lives on the line, which was a great moment for me because when we sat down to write the principles of chaos, you know, I had Papirian notions of Western science floating around in the back of my head. And so I, to the healthcare companies, I could say, hey, look, we base this on notions of Western science. And the pinnacle of Western science is the clinical trial. You already do chaos engineering. You just call it something different. You do these experiments on where lives are on the line. That's how modern medicine was built. <laughs> and it was just it was such a great moment to see it. Oh, yeah, I guess that is true. Yeah, okay, so maybe yeah, maybe software could benefit from something a little bit similar. Uh, and now we see, you know, big healthcare companies picking it up. So I do think that the industry is recognizing this problem and moving in that direction whether it's explicitly or just through blind the invisible hand of progress, I don't know. Well, like that's the kind of thing that's interesting to me, right? Is like we have been taught certain things about what makes things safe what's the right way to do it. You know, and a lot of this is based from naive assumptions that we can predict what's going to happen. And yet, like you take an example like healthcare, right, where, you know, scientific methods is used in trials and clinical trials and humans where they, they take sample sizes, they give sample A this injection, give sample B that injection, and then we see what the results are and that they drive the outcome we expect. Makes sense when they're doing their human trials. Yep. When you ask them to manage their businesses like that, they sort of look at you in shock and horror. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's heretic. <laughs> yep. You know, like what I constantly find, and it's interesting, again, you bring up the banking, like how many conversations I've had with financial institutions where, where I say to them, well, how do you manage the complexity of the market? Oh, well, you know, we, we don't put all our bets on one thing. We put bets on lots of different funds and we see how those funds perform in the complexity of the market. And based on how they perform, we double down on the ones that work. And that, yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah. Do you manage your business like that? No, 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 no. <laughs> we just tell people what to do because we're really, really smart. You know, and it's sort of like trying to highlight that behavior to people. Yeah. Is that you're great at managing the market complexity using this method. Why don't you manage your internal complexity, your company complexity, your product complexity like this? I think it's one of these, like you said, a penny drop moment when they recognize that they're using predictive behaviors in a complex system where they should be experimenting yeah. and they experiment in other parts of their business. I think that's why they can have this mass adoption very, very quickly because they know the behaviors. They're just not using them in the right context. You know, and it sort of goes back again, constantly this idea of setting that context for people about why and how they should use certain methods in the context that they're in or the challenge in they're facing or the circumstances there are. So I'm kind of interesting, like with the tools you're creating, 
how are the tools you're creating, or do you hope that they will change the behavior for people? How will they make it easier for them? So the way I think about it, the, there, there's this, this interesting relationship between chaos engineering and resilience engineering, where resilience engineering has like 40 years of history and some crucially important findings, but you can't easily implement it. So I'm, I'm in the master's program at Lund University on Human Factors and System Safety, where it's basically a course in resilience engineering. They wouldn't like me saying that, but that's, that's basically what it is. And it's so fascinating and it's so hard. And there's excitement out in the industry right now, like, oh, well, let's, let's adopt resilience engineering. I agree that resilience engineering can have a huge impact on not just uh, the software industry, but just industry as a whole. The, the problem is it's really hard it requires a, a background with a sociological bend to it. So, you know, either background in sociology or, or a lot of experience in management, maybe psychology, depending which parts you're interested in. And so if you want to do resilience engineering, I would say, okay, here's a dozen books you should read. None of them agree with each other. So you're going to have to like pick out the, the pieces that work for you. And then you're going to have to experiment. And maybe in two or three years, you've got a good way of implementing it. But good luck selling that to your boss. Hey, what are, what are you doing? Well, I'm just, I'm going to take three years to figure this out and then it's going to be great. Sounds like agile software development. <laughs> <laughs> but without the certified trainers, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we so haven't got that's that. coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, stay tuned. Business idea. There's, well, that, that one's free. Whereas chaos engineering by, there's no question resilience engineering can have a bigger payout than chaos engineering because resilience engineering is about organizational change and transformation and the feedback loops. But what I like about chaos engineering is any engineer can go build chaos engineering tools tomorrow. You know, you just need permission or time or, or whatever. You don't need to read those books or, you know, the, the discipline has already been pioneered. You can start with what's been done and then extend it in whatever part of software you're in. So you can start doing that right away. Getting back to your question, I see chaos engineering tools, by virtue of what they're doing, they help take the bureaucracy out of the organizations where they're being practiced because it's generating context at the sharp end. And it's giving them the ability, the explicit ability to experiment, which means they're generating new context that then they have to trickle up. It can't come from top down because these are things that you're teaching, you're generating new knowledge. They're unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. So if you adopt chaos engineering, then whether you like it or not, you're taking steps towards removing bureaucracy from your organization. So I like that there's kind of that element of enacting an organizational change as a collateral ROI. But I think that the thing I really take away from here listening to you and, and this sort of philosophy is you're moving the accountability and the authority to where the information yes. is. Yes, absolutely. That's what excites me about all of these is let's give the people with the best context the feedback mechanisms to let them know when they've changed things, what's happening. Yeah. What are you going to do differently based on the change? You've done a deployment. Did it move the needle the way you want or not? How can you quickly can you react to that? And that, I think, is a real powerful capability for companies to have, whether you're trying to build new products and experiment with customers new markets, you're trying, trying new technologies to see if they work or not, what cloud provider should you use or not. Like this is a philosophy I think that any company can use. And no, there is no certification. No, there is no. And great. I don't ever want to see one, by the way. But what I would encourage you to think, again, is it's, it's encouraging people to think for themselves, to explore, to try new things, to use different tools, to find out what works for them in their context. And yeah. That's way more exciting to me than some sort of scaled framework that has a paint-by-numbers approach to achieve yeah, these things. Yeah. It's, again, the paint-by-numbers is a predictive model yep. for a complex system. I think what you're trying to embrace here is give people the tools to experiment so they can explore complex systems safely. That's a, kind of a really powerful idea, I think, for people to recognize what you're trying to do and how these tools can help them resilient systems, more available systems, more secure systems, more used systems in general. So what has sort of been one of the, your unlearning moments really as, as you start to embrace this idea or champion this idea of 
chaos in, in engineering. What has been sort of the some of the the pushbacks you've seen or the aha moments you've had along the way? Yes, I really love the things that we think intuitively having like getting the data back that shows that it's wrong. Like I, I could rattle off a uh, redundancy makes systems more robust. Turns out that's orthogonal to uh, robustness. Adding redundancy often makes things fail. Avoiding risk makes systems safer. Actually, turns out that in most situations, the, the people who, the teams that take more risks tend to be better at handling truly unsafe situations. And so, you know, given a choice between a team that takes risks or not, if you want a safer system, you want to take the one that, the, the team that takes risks. You know, it seems very counterintuitive. Training is a good way to, to solve problems that lead to incidents. It can help. Usually it, that's an organizational sign that people higher up don't understand how work is actually being done. So my favorite example there is a few months back, Starbucks had a racist incident in, uh, in one of their shops in Philadelphia. And they, they said, oh, well, we're going to close all Starbucks for a day and we're going to train a thousand managers on bias. Yeah, but you can't train racism out of people. So really that, that situation was caused by a lack of alignment in, in the management of, you know, what's the purpose of Starbucks and what does a good job mean when you're managing a Starbucks? That's how you address that. So when people say, oh, we'll fix it through training, usually that's a sign that they're probably on the wrong path. Yeah. So there's a lot of examples like that in the, in the research, which is just why I'm, I'm back in it because I find that fascinating. Uh, but I can, I can actually take this back to a childhood anecdote. I remember as a kid reading about Lee Erickson and you know the Vikings making it to North America. And then I went to school and at least here in the States, they had this, oh, well, Columbus, you know, 1492, he sailed the ocean blue to prove that the earth was round. And I remember hearing that from my teacher and sitting on my hands and just being horrified <laughs> and going home. And as soon as I got to my parents, I'm like, they told me this in school. That's not what I knew. And, you know, my parents were not really concerned about it. We're like, oh, yeah, sometimes they just, you know, say things. And like, you know, it wasn't important to them. And I feel like that was a defining moment for me because it was like, oh, the people who are specifically disseminating information to us, like that's their job. Sometimes deliberately tell us the wrong thing <laughs> because it's convenient. All the lessons we learn <laughs> are not necessarily the right lessons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was more cynical in my youth, I used to say, most people are wrong about most things most of the time. And yet we do such wonderful things. <laughs> but, you know, again, the intent of even that statement, right? The recognition that most of the time what we do is wrong. Yep. So why don't we build systems to tell us when we're wrong really quickly and cheaply? And to me, that's sort of the nub of what chaos engineering is about. How can I learn fast whether expect the, the outcome I'm aiming for, the consequence I'm hoping for, we're going in that direction or not? And then what am I going to do about it? You know, and I think that's the sort of elegant part of this for me is like building systems to help people explore uncertainty. And as we keep building these more complex and complex and complex systems, like the Netflix of the world, like Google platforms, like Facebook platforms, these things that we just can't even comprehend how those systems work, how they're connected. No one person will ever hold all that in their head. So I think, you know, building the tools that you're trying to do to help us have these feedback mechanisms is not only important for our industry or like it's also important for society because they systems have such an impact on society now yeah absolutely like training biases into algorithms right it's yep yep driving people manipulating behaviors of platforms because they can understand how the code is written by people mm -hmm. super interesting but if you don't know that that's happening if you don't have these mechanisms that you're trying to build in place to help people understand that you know, we have no way to guide us. And that's a problem I constantly see, even in companies where leaders aren't describing the success that people are trying to achieve. So people are well, just doing stuff. Yeah. And that's not just an industry. I would say that that's a, a problem of complexity that the whole world is facing right now. And, you know, the common reaction is, and I'm sure this, I'm sure some of the software engineers can relate to this. Have you ever, you know, been put on a new project and it's really complex. It's not only complex, but complicated. 
So you go, you know what? It's just going to be easier to, to, to build this over from scratch. Oh, let's, just, let's just burn the system down so that we can build a new one. Uh, you can kind of see that in a lot of places. Industries, our industry is it fetishizes uh, disruption, but it's there in politics. It's there in just about every facet of you know Western culture right now. This system is too hard to understand. I don't know if it's working for me. Let's get rid of it. Yeah, because a lot of people make a lot of money out of that decision, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, again, thanks for being on the podcast. It's been great to learn a little bit more about chaos engineering, a little bit more about yourself and some of the work you're doing. Uh, I'm looking forward to following the trajectory of your new startup. Best of luck with that. Thanks very much. Thank you. I look forward to unlearning new things every day. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, man.